turmeric, the intensely orange-gold cousin of ginger, hailed for its anti-inflammatory properties. Used very little in the U.S. until just a few years ago, has now exploded on menus in restaurants and cafes, even in packaged tea products and face masks. But turmeric has a very different context in India. I saw turmeric as a thing that just um, was used across the board in Indian cuisine. If you're making breakfast, add a spoon of turmeric. If you're making lunch, add a spoon of turmeric. So I didn't necessarily see it as like a singled out superfoody property or um, as like a buzzword to attach to a latte. Um, I really just saw it the way I think Americans would see salt. From Mumbai to Oakland, Sana Javeri Kadri shares how she built her company, Diaspora Co., to decolonize the commodity spice trade. I'm Carolyn Kissick. And I'm Colleen King. Thanks for joining us today on Sorceress for this episode on turmeric and how the heirloom varietals once cast out by the British colonizers are being sourced and revitalized. Welcome to Sorceress. Hello. So today is really fun because this is Sana from Diaspora Co., who I've known for a while, a few years now. And as far as friendships go, I've always wanted to ask her some of these questions, but it never really feels like the right place because doing a deep dive into your company when you both have intense jobs and own companies, it's not always the thing you want to do over coffee or something like that. It's really, really interesting to get to know what the other person is up to. Like our podcast wouldn't even exist if we didn't get to that point in that conversation. With We'd each like other. never had talked about it. I and didn't then we even were... know that you sourced tequila. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so her company's called Diaspora Co. Mm-hmm. And you both have an emphasis in post-colonial studies in your backgrounds, yep. which was interesting for me to learn about. But I think... It would be good for you to like break it down a little bit more for the people that are listening that maybe don't focus in those areas. Yeah. So postcolonial theory, it's, you know, it's kind of a lens. So it's a way to study culture, economics, politics, music of a country that was once colonized. And, you know, as we know, colonialism is when a country takes over as another sovereign place, which had its own systems and was taken by force. And then that colonial country physically occupies that place in order to extract people, products, and resources with total disregard and often deliberately disrupting the previous systems and cultures and beliefs. So post-colonial studies is studying what power structures remain. So in this case, spices, which are traded with the same ridiculous systems that the British set up. So for example, do you remember when Sana was talking about the way that turmeric was sort of graded and named when the British colonizers came? Yeah, I do. And I actually looked into this a little bit more. So what's known as Aleppi turmeric comes from the Kerala region, but the name itself comes from the beach, Alapuza, where the British just like to go vacationing, but really has nothing to do with the spice trade down there. Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. It basically makes no sense. So, you know, those are some examples of how that power structure remains. And, you know, a lot of the products that we discuss at Sorceress are in this realm because agricultural systems are set up as a dominant form of income. And in part, when these colonizers lose power and the sovereign nations regain their independence, that country still serves the interest of the larger power because the majority of the money that's made is in the trade. And that was the whole point in the first place. And as we all know, trade rules the world. 
So want to do a really quick plug here for our music curator, Danielle. She also does a wonderful job at explaining the concepts of diaspora and colonialism in her music segment after the interview. So don't go anywhere and make sure you tune in for that. Her playlist this week is Queer South Asian Femme, and it is absolute fire. What we were just talking about is the disconnect between naming and trade, but let's talk about the disconnect of consumers and what turmeric actually physically is. We went to the grocery store the other day and saw it in basically on every single shelf, like lentil chips, dried uh, turmeric, or what's it called? Golden milk. What else did you see? Granola bars. It's in powder form. It's in it's in fresh form, which is pretty rare. I mean, Whole Foods and I think some of the like higher end natural food stores can carry it, but you were telling me about when yeah. you typically purchase it, they don't even know what it is at the checkout counter. No, I usually get it for the ginger price because I think they just don't want to look up the code, which is cool for me because it's usually like $5 a pound cheaper. But yeah, it's there's still a you know lack of understanding of what turmeric actually is. I don't think I actually knew that it was a root for a while growing up, I thought it was always just a powder uh, that went into curry and made my hands yellow. That's what's kind of funny about people using them in these like face masks and things. And like, how are you going to, it's going to stain your whole sink. Toning. Like, likely. <laughs> uh, confession, I actually did make a honey turmeric face mask one time and I put it on and I sat in the bathtub with it on and I definitely dyed my bathtub bright yellow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's. It's the wonderful and difficult thing about turmeric, right? Yes. Caution, be careful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, great. Now we know, don't take a bath with turmeric, and let's get into the interview. Okay, so I would love for you to start with your definition of turmeric, because I think in the marketplace, it's very common to find now in cafes. You can find it at these, like, golden milk lattes. It's sort of this, like, hot buzzword, Mm -hmm. but really and truly, like, at its core as a plant. Can you describe what is turmeric? What is turmeric? I mean, turmeric's a rhizome, um, and turmeric, in the simplest way, is ginger's cousin. Like, it looks exactly like ginger, it grows like ginger, it just happens to have curcumin and it's orange. But in every other way, it's it's ginger. Um, I see turmeric, I think I talk a lot about how I saw turmeric as an invisible thing. I saw turmeric as a thing that just... um, was used across the board in Indian cuisine. If you're making breakfast, add a spoon of turmeric. If you're making lunch, add a spoon of turmeric. So I didn't necessarily see it as like a singled out super foody property or um, as like a buzzword to attach to a latte. Um, I really just saw it the way I think Americans would see salt. If you ask actually, say like an Indian spice exporter who's been in the business for three generations. His dad did it, his dad's dad did it, and I say his because it's definitely a he. And uh, they will not know that there's indigenous varieties of turmeric. They will confidently look at me and say, you are full of shit, you are a young woman, you do not know anything. Exotify turmeric and like how it, you know, has this cultural context and place. And then I looked at a photo of the plant and the photo, and it was like the most stereotypically exotic looking plant <laughs> there ever could be. Yes. Like it has this like orchid-like purple flower. It's so um, beautiful. It's stunning, but it's also like exactly what you would imagine in like, uh, what's that guy, painter's name? Gauguin? Mm-hmm. Gauguin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like his Tahitian paintings. It was like a turmeric plant would be in there. Yeah. And so I was like, it really makes a case for itself. It has like a beautiful orange root and these amazing purple flowers. So when you began sourcing turmeric, where did you have to start? Oh, dear. Um, so, my, I mean, I think... 
before sourcing it, it goes one step further, which is that I grew up in Mumbai where, like, for a long time, I really thought the vegetables grew at the vegetable market. Um, the concept of agriculture was not understood by me. Um, or most folks in Mumbai, there's a huge disconnect between rural and urban. Um, so... When I started asking people about where spices were coming from, I was asking those questions in the U.S. I wasn't asking those questions in India. And that meant made, I think, my process for finding and starting turmeric a lot longer because I was asking Americans who knew nothing and thinking they knew more than I did. Like Why I did asked, you have the assumption that Americans knew more? Is I there, think you think they're more connected to That's a very good question. I think because I... No, because Americans are so much more confident with buzzwords ah. and using words like, this is like locally sourced and organic and ethical and da 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 And I was like, okay, well, if they have all these words, they must know where it's coming from. Bullshit. Um, like Indians don't, or at least traditional Indians don't use that word, any of those words. but The buzzwords. The, any of the buzzwords, but still know exactly where stuff's coming from. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I actually started with talking to Oaktown Spice and ta- I Googled every single turmeric latte company in the U.S. and emailed all of them, everybody responded to me saying, we have no idea. Where it's coming from? Yeah. I was like, you run a turmeric latte company. How do you not know? It's amazing but how many companies, though, don't... Have read. no idea. They're very disconnected from matter. their own supply chain. Yeah, exactly. And I think American business... I think the allure of American business is that you can be. Like, you can be disconnected from your supply chain, and you don't need to be connected to it. Um, you can kind of live in America and not care about what happens... Back there, back there being India, China, da 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 um, So anyway, looping back around to supply chain and kind of how it started, I emailed maybe like 40 different trading organizations, export companies, scientists, anybody that would give me answers in turmeric, and these are all Indian connections. I didn't get a single response, like crickets, wow. for months. I started sending those emails in February. Until June, I had had two conversations both of which, like, went terribly because people were like, so is this your dad's business? And I'd be like, no, no, it's really not. Um, Do you think that was gender and age? Both. Yeah, definitely. Um, But eventually, I basically just bought a flight to the Indian Institute of Spice Research and showed up, and they acted like they'd been waiting for me all along. Where they're like, oh, Sana, madam, so good to see you. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, I saw you, like, read my WhatsApps, you left it read, and you never responded. And when I called their office, they would be on chai break for three months. (laughs) I was like, really? You're still drinking chai. Um, So I just showed up, and... Once I showed up, they were incredibly helpful, and I feel like in the two, the first time I met them, I spent two hours at the Institute, the Indian Institute of Spice Research, and they gave me an education on, like, turmeric history, the history of how turmeric was traded, and for me, given that my, a lot of my college thesis was about colonialism and how British colonialism affected Indian agriculture, what they were telling me tied in so perfectly with the research I had previously done that it really felt like all these puzzle pieces falling together. Sure. I mean, what they were saying was that the spice trade hasn't changed since the British, and that the British showed up in the 18th... Well, they showed up a long time ago, but the British showed up for the specifically for spices in the 1800s um, and had no way to understand what the different varieties were. They couldn't tell, you know, the difference between a turmeric grown in Kerala versus a turmeric grown in Andhra Pradesh. 
Um, it was like, it was all the orange stuff. Um, and it's not even like they had the culture to know how to cook with this stuff. Right. It was more that it was a luxury good. Sure. Like it just became a scarce item. I, I often say that like spices were the first luxury food product, um, you know, yeah. um, and people don't understand that. And I'm like, Louis Vuitton handbag, spices, same concept. British don't know what to do with the handbags. They don't know what to do with the spices, but they want them anyway. Um, and basically they created, um, what's, they created like a sorting and quality assessments using just color and size. So not using, um, you know, for turmeric, it should be curcumin. It should be. Can you explain oh. what curcumin is? Yeah. Curcumin is essentially an active compound in, um, turmeric that has a lot of anti-inflammatory properties. So all of the woo-woo buzz around turmeric comes from, the active compound that is curcumin. But curcumin is like remarkably elusive in that if your turmeric is old, the curcumin has probably evaporated into the air. If um, you don't know which variety it is, your curcumin level can be anywhere from 0% to 6%. 6% being very rare, 0 to 2% being very common. Um, so curcumin, I mean, it's ridiculous that in the American grocery store, people are calling everything, you know, like anti-inflammatory granola, like this is cancer-fighting latte, where if it just has like seven-year-old turmeric that was mixed from six different varieties that was traded in 2012 and is now in Whole Foods, there's no curcumin in it. And that's there. a very common situation, That right? is the norm. That's that the is norm. all the turmeric out there. Like if you're not doing, say you even did, say that you did a curcumin test for your batch that comes into the U.S. March 2019. Your April batch is from 10 other farms, so you would have to do a whole new curcumin test. And those tests are very expensive. So unless you're insuring, like, single origin, single variety, you're never going to know how much curcumin is in there. It really is quite the sham. And, like, the layers of what a sham it is has taken me a while to fully process. It's funny because I went to um, Sensory Summit at UC Davis, mm -hmm. and last year there was a guy who talked about tea and how they were looking at climate change and the monsoons. Mm -hmm. in China and how they were uh, growing this tea and it tasted horrible after the monsoon but the monsoons were getting closer and closer together and they were selling this tea as like an antioxidant thing right mm. and, but they were actually testing it to say how much antioxidants are in this in order to label it properly mm -hmm. this like outside company and what they found was after the monsoons the chemical structure actually changed where there was better sleep aids than there was, and there was hardly any antioxidants. antioxidants. Interesting. So they ended up after that study, if the rain came close together and uh -huh. they weren't able to harvest in time, they would sell that to a pharmaceutical company who would extract this compound Ugh, and then sell wild. it for sleep aid. But at one time it was sold as a stimulant and an antioxidant. Right. So I think people are starting to take a closer look, but that took that's a really interesting. Yeah. Major funding. Because they're trying yeah. to sort of see, we're use, overusing these buzzword labels, right? Absolutely. Well, there are a lot of companies in India who are doing curcumin testing and then extracting curcumin for those tablets. Sure. Um, but I think from my more agricultural point of view, I would rather see a turmeric farmer growing a mixed farm of, you know, yams and bananas and turmeric um, and having a market for all of those things rather than like monocropping turmeric for a curcumin company that's then selling it to a big pharmaceutical company that's then selling a curcumin tablet that nobody can afford. Yeah. Like that system is also broken. Like that's a whole other industrial complex. Sure. And also you're banking on that that's still going to be trending. Absolutely. Like, there's not going to be something else. And so like yeah. the monocrop thing is problematic in so many ways because right. 
diversification is like the best thing yeah, you can do for a farmer. Exactly. Right? So I've noticed like our farmer Prabhu, or he's not ours, but our partner farmer Prabhu, he now has so he has he's now growing black rice, bananas, um, yams, and turmeric. And he, I mean, he now makes very good money off of the turmeric with us, but he was saying that, you know, that's a once a year harvest. So I, I make one fat check off of you, but what about everything else? Like he was growing conventional rice for the longest time and selling it on the commodity market and getting nothing for it. So he's now started looking for black rice, right? Like Indian indigenous black rice varieties. And immediately he's able to get triple. And I guess my fear for him is like, I am working super hard to ensure that you will always have a turmeric market and that I will always be able to pay you for turmeric because we're marketing it as more than a buzzword. But with black rice, like people are kind of like, oh yeah, black rice is super cancer fighting, da 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 And I don't know when that niche will go away. Yeah. Kind of like quinoa is not really cool anymore. Yeah, you I know? still buy it though. You do? Okay, I don't. I don't know. I, I was definitely the millennial that rode the wave and then yeah. dropped off the not wave. Not as much. And I don't see it on as many menus. Right, exactly. It's not as sexy anymore. It's yeah. like the health food. Yeah. Um, and I worry about that with him. I don't know. I'm wary. I would really like him to hedge his bets rather than chase the next soup, become the superfood farmer. We forget as consumers that these farmers, and we talked about this yesterday actually with Dandelion, it's like the difficulty, they will do whatever you ask them to, to do. They exactly. Will, they, it's, they are desperate. They are desperate. They want to, they're seeing that something is working. We have a large responsibility in sourcing yeah. to yeah. watch Exactly. Out. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I guess, my fear where a lot of Prabhu's cousins, when I go visit the fields, will always like come up. They, he'll say that, you know, today four different cousins are coming to visit. And I know that they're all going to come and be like, so... I grow turmeric, will you buy from me too? Or like, you know, I currently have an engineering job, but I'll quit it tomorrow if it means I can come back and farm. Which is also wild is that like there's this whole breed of young Indian men who really want to return back to their family farms because they miss that quality really? of life. Because that's, yeah. that's actually what, different from what I'm seeing in other, in coffee growing in, regions. Mm-hmm. Whereas, but it's only on the basis of if their parents are successful they want to go to college. Right. These are all kids that went to college. Interesting. And okay. who usually then get kind of middle class um, IT jobs in bigger cities. Mm. And their quality of life suddenly sucks because yeah, they're living horrible. in a tiny apartment, working at a computer all day. And they really start to miss the farm. And they're now seeing that their cousin Prabhu is making almost as much money as they are, but growing turmeric. And so I think for them, the draw towards coming back is strong. But all of them will kind of ask me the same questions, like, should we do this? And I have to really say, you know, hold your horses. Like, I can currently pay one person and well. I don't know that I can pay all of you. So please please don't quit any jobs. That would be very bad. And also, you know, grow something else. Like, grow another indigenous Andhra variety of something. All of you don't need to be growing this one strain of turmeric. Like go another spice and I will buy it from you. Yeah. Um, but there's also a risk involved with that. It's, it's really tricky. You really feel like by existing in the U S and being the Western buyer, you have power, responsibility, guilt, privilege. It's, I think that's also why I find those work trips of sourcing trips so exhausting because you're balancing a lot. You're tra- you're translating culturally, you're translating linguistically. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're balancing your needs, their needs, your moral responsibility. It's yeah. a lot. I usually get dizzy. So let's talk about um, the your company itself. Can you explain to people what diaspora is? Yeah. Um, so I think I started it after that conversation with the Indian Institute of Spice Research. They essentially explained to me that um, 
all the indigenous varieties of spices, any spice, um, are not actually sold on the export market. So if we look at turmeric as an example, um, the way that turmeric is sold on the export market is with a shade card. So if any turmeric meets this particular shade of orange, it can get sold as Alipi turmeric, which gets the highest price. What is Alipi turmeric? Alipi was like the British's favorite vacation destination in Kerala. Um, if it's a lighter color, it gets sold as Madras turmeric. What is Madras? An imaginary place that the British liked where, you know, they vacationed. Um, so that same with pepper, like Malabar pepper, it's just a size. Telecherry pepper, it's a smaller size. And these these names, are they destinations? They're, Seems like luxury destinations. They're colonial destinations. Right. So the names have changed. Like, there is no Malabar Coast anymore. That was a British name. Alipi is now Alipuza. Um, Madras doesn't exist. Madras, like, Madrasi is actually, like, a derogatory term for South Indians. Um, so saying Madras turmeric is like... But it's, it's standardized and it's used. Yeah, to- and it's used within Indian trade, like exporters and traders. Those are the words that they use. Um, and if you ask, actually, say like an Indian spice exporter who's been in the business for three generations, his dad did it, his dad's dad did it, and they say his because it's definitely a he. Yeah. Um, and uh, they will not know that there's indigenous varieties of turmeric. They will confidently look at me and say, you are full of shit. You are a young woman. You do not know anything. There are only three varieties. There's Madras, there's Alipi, there's Salem. Anything else doesn't exist. And that's like knowledge from the 1850s that was made up. Um, So we focus on indigenous varieties and varieties and then really honing in on what is that variety known for? What does it do? What are its flavor profiles? Um, In the case of turmeric, what is the curcumin content? And we started with turmeric mostly because I was attracted to this idea of a buzzwordy, Um, trendy thing and then flipping that on its head and making it equitable and sustainable so we kind of complete this loop where ISR licenses seeds to farmers for free um, and they're seeds that ISR has been saving this is the Spice Spice Research Institute has been saving for you know upwards of 30 years now and then those farmers will grow that those seeds organically Um, often we will help those farmers transition to organic or work on their certifications um, which is a three-year process, and then we will buy up whatever the farmer grows. So previously, ISR just existed in like its academic ivory tower where they were putting all these varieties out, but they had no ability to market it. They had, essentially, it was going nowhere. And then farmers had no incentive to buy it because they weren't getting a premium for it. Um, so work fixing that loop. So did you um, did you single-handedly change that? I guess, yes. I don't want to take credit for that. Sure, that, of course, that seems... of course. But I mean, you. it sounds like you showing up there after yes. knowing they at least read your WhatsApp was the beginning, the catalyst of yes, something. Yes, we were definitely the first people to close that loop. Um, I went back to ISR for the third time a couple months ago. And again, like I thought, you know, we're, we're work colleagues now. We work together. They're going to respond to me. We're homies. Like um, I get photos of their ki- all the scientists' kids all the time. But of course, like a month leading up to my trip, no responses. Where I was just like, really, guys? Like, I'm what? So it's really I, common though in trade, at least yeah. for me, for in terms of like international negotiations yeah. and even things like that. People like, just drop off the map. I don't know why. I'm. I don't know why. Do you know why people don't respond? I mean, sometimes email, but WhatsApp is even. I think one of the reasons people transition to it is because we can at least see that right. it's red. Exactly. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> that red receipt is so important. Yes. Um. I don't, I think I have chalked it up to these being government institutions where these government officers actually in agriculture are pretty well paid. ISR pays well. Like I have asked all the scientists before, you know, why do you work in this industry? And they all look at me like salary. 
Um, cause I think for them, if, when they went into science, there were only well, like very few options. Um, and well, so all that to say is I show up at ISR unannounced for the third time, despite having a working relationship with these people. But this time right in the lobby, I see a, a glass case and I see the Diaspora Co products in this glass case at the reception wow. being like first U.S. import of ISR like strains. And I was just like, oh, you guys. Um, and they basically said that because of our case study. So they, I guess, used me as like a research case study of this could work. Um, they never told me they were doing that, but they did. Um, they were able to secure funding to continue their research for other spices now. So they've now extended this this particular kind of marketing project or pilot project to ginger to um mango ginger which is kind of like a cousin of ginger and turmeric that smells like mango mm. and it's a really interesting spice that's usually used just as a, a pickle in india mm-hmm. um so it's used fresh not dried um i have deviated but Basically, yes, we were the first people to do this. And I think that's really changing. Already, a lot of the words that a year and a half ago were not words or like single varietal. People are just like, what does that mean? What's the point of that? Um, People get it now. We went to a trade show and there was a guy who talked to me and he was like, oh, yeah, like I source Pragadi turmeric, da, 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 da. And I was like, I'm the only importer of Pragadi turmeric in the United States. So if you do, you buy from me, which you don't. So what's up, buddy? What did he say? And like, he did, he had very little to say. It was very awkward. Um, but I felt like it was worth making that point of like, I I am good at my sourcing and you are lying to me. And you run a very large company. I will not have you lying about where this comes from. Like if he was truly getting it from another farmer, fantastic. But I know for a fact that that isn't happening. So just to know that already... If you're in turmeric in any way, people have recognized that the trendy thing to say is that you have Pragati turmeric, which is this indigenous variety of turmeric. Which was so rare um, before. Which didn't exist before. Nobody, like, knew what it was. Um, People were usually like, that sounds terrible. So this tends to happen over our conversations in multiple industries where Mm -hmm. there's these big companies and they're recognizing these small trends because we have these like trailblazers that are going out and they're saying like, I'm either returning to my roots or I'm trying to get to the source or I'm trying to disrupt supply chain and do things differently. And they're buying other companies that are more like, have this ethical Are more woke than them basically. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. they want a slice, but in the end it doesn't, seem like they're actually doing anything to continue that legacy yeah so how do people make a decision when you're in a grocery store and you're trying to maybe buy turmeric for yourself for 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 any reason like let's say well one they can buy it on your website that they can but if you're going to a grocery store yeah is it possible to get high quality spices spices in general i would say at a regular american grocery store no okay um the spice section is horrible um, I think that that's changing. Um, I think initially when I started the company, I was very protective over the idea and what we were doing and anybody else that was doing a similar thing. I was, I mean, I understood the value in it, but I was a bit hostile. Whereas I've understood like the term, the spice market is a hundred billion or something nuts like that. So if, even if a hundred spice companies that are up and coming do this really well and become $1 billion companies, which is unlikely, um, we're all chilling. You know, we're not in competition with each other. So there's companies, there's Burlap and Barrel, they're doing fantastic work. There's Rumi Spice, there's Reluctant Trading Experiment. 
there's people who are trying to, but none of us are in big grocery stores yet. So that I think is still maybe two years away before you see one of our companies in say Whole Foods or Safeway or something like that. But I will say that going to an Indian grocery store is usually, you're not getting more ethically sourced spices for sure, but you're gonna get much fresher spices because at an Indian grocery store, their turnover of those spices is so much quicker. You're at least getting maybe last year's harvest right. as opposed to Whole Foods where you're getting like 2012 harvest, right. um, at which point you're consuming powder. Yeah. Um, the amount of people that tell me they didn't know the turmeric had a smell. Really? I'm like, how? That's one of the best parts it's of it like for me. It's one of the strongest smelling spices out there too. Yeah. Like it can be in a cellar for three years and you can still smell it. Yeah. So if people can't smell it, then how old is it really? Oh um, yeah. Let's go into diaspora as a concept yeah. you've made your uh, branding very personal mm -hmm. and it is your story to tell mm -hmm. and I would love for you to sort of outline your experience and why it was important for you to include that in yeah your um I think part of it is that I am and was very young when I started it in that so much of starting the company was wrapped up in finding my own identity and figuring out where I fit in in America in the workplace uh, uh just as a person like I had come out like a few months before I started the company. So there was a lot of identity discovering that happened as the company was discovering itself. And so now we're very intertwined. Um, I think most importantly, when I moved to America, I didn't see myself represented anywhere. I didn't see Indian culture, but not from an Indian American point of view. I, I didn't, I, did you ever read Americana by Chimamanda? Mm -hmm. So I empathize with that book so deeply. And she talks so much about Africans versus African-Americans, yes. African immigrants yes. versus African-Americans. And I feel that so much where I am Indian. I'm not Indian-American, um, but I'm also not Indian in all the stereotypes and loaded expectations that are laid, laid on me. The amount of kids that have asked me like, you know, did you go to school on a tiger? Like, are you crazy? What is wrong with you? On a tiger? On a tiger. And I'm like, how? Just how? These are children in um, the U.S. These are not children. I say children, but these are freshmen in college when I was a freshman in college. Oh. I guess they're children. Um, or, you know, just just wild things. I think initially it was actually a anger that people expected that I knew how to cook with spices. And I was just coming out of two years in high school in Italy where most of my formative cooking was actually learning how to cook Italian food. Right. So I was like, no, actually, I don't know the first thing about Indian food. I couldn't cook it if you asked me to. Um, so actually now becoming a spice dealer is kind of hilarious because for so long I was angry that people just expected that I would know where spices came from. Yeah. Um, or for a long time people would be like, well, what do you know about Ayurveda? And I was like, I don't know shit. Um, and now I'm actually realizing how wrong that was is that I knew a lot about Ayurveda, but I didn't know it in the buzzwordy language of America. I knew it as like, you're sick. You do these three things. That's just medicine. Um, I didn't know it as like, oh yes, that is like the Ayurvedic system of belief. Right. Um, well, so that's the American uh, like code of exoticism, right? It's like you take something, add like, a bunch of labels you on add it, add a bunch of labels on it, you like exoticize it, and then you like deliver it back to you. And exactly. Like, is this what you are? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I was like, no, not that. No, I'm not. Yeah. Um, so that was part of it, and then I think also working in the food industry, I found it that very straight. 
um, and very overwhelmingly white and straight white men seem to have all the power, which I guess they do in general. But that's so not true of food in, in reality. Yeah. You know, our food is grown by black and brown people. Um, our food is cooked by black and brown people. Um, so how is it that white dudes are getting all the credit? Um, so working on the line in restaurants, um, working in front of house, working in food marketing. Ever since I moved to America seven years ago, I have worked in the food industry in some way. And it has always been like run by people of color. Um, so I needed that POC-ness, that queerness to be very visible from the get-go with our company. And I think because we started talking about that in 2016, other people hadn't really started doing that. There was Angela Dimayuga, who's now um, heads up Food and Bev at the Standard Hotel. Mm -hmm. She's a badass and a huge inspiration to me. And she had already started calling things like queer spaces within the food industry. But beyond that, that didn't exist. Um, so I remember actually getting a lot of heat for it our first year. Really? Yeah, where we, I didn't read the comment section for like our first four features because we were marketing ourselves as a queer company. And I kept saying like, we're not saying queer as in like, we have lesbian sex queer. Right. Like queer as in we have radical politics and we believe in equality. And like actually our sourcing and our ethics just ties into queerness. And like, if you would read a little bit on Googles, you would know that. Um, but the amount of comments that we got, I did read some comments um, that were kind of about, um, you know, what does her sexuality have to do with it? Why do I need to know who she has sex with? That's not the point. Um, whereas now, like having a queer business is like getting to be quite sexy. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess we're sexy now. <laughs> um, That's yeah. the best place to be. It is a nice list to be. It hurt for the first year, though. Sure. Yeah. So how how do you work outside of that system? Because it feels like yeah. very institutionalized. I mean, I know in general trading is like it's a very old school game. Absolutely. Coffee still uses those words as well. And right. I mean, in these other industries, they make so much money, but they're not even standardized Absolutely. in a way that is like modern or yeah. um, really like reevaluating like the knowledge structures that first set them up. Right. So how do you create a trade that yeah, is outside um, of that? Well, OK, so let's start with the auction house. Uh, that's based on commodity trading, right? And commodity pricing, which changes every day. It's basically like a stock market for foods. Um, for me, the first thing is just stepping out of that, saying we will set a price for the year and we will pay you that price no matter what. And the next year, our price will go up no matter what. So if, you know, for example, Prebu's harvest for last year was six tons. For this year, it's four tons. So it's actually less, but we're paying him more. Um, we're not... We're basically not buying into the demand and supply of turmeric. We're buying into his efforts, his work. That's first. firstly. The second one is giving him the tools he needs to be organic, which is we needed to be profit sharing with him so that he could invest in capital, expecting him to transition to organic with no support, like just off of the money he made the first year in business with us is unrealistic. You know, he can't buy milling equipment with that. He can't hire people with that. He just about broke even last year because he'd invested so much. So we created something called the Good Capital Fund, where essentially $5 off of every one of our tins um, went straight to him. And for 2018, that was only $1,000. So that wasn't much. Um, and we, we started doing it late in the game where we expected to be profitable and we weren't. So we had to like come up with a fix sure. to still be able to help him with his capital needs. Um, and for this year, we actually think it'll probably be 10,000, wow. um, which will be incredible. And that means that Prabhu gets a mill, yeah. you know, and for us, like the fact that one farmer's crop is supporting 
four employees here, of course we should be profit sharing with him. You know, yeah. if we weren't profit sharing with him, that doesn't really make sense. Um, and for him, I think he was so shocked that we were just going to hand him money at the end of the year. He was like, Madam, like you, you, you only, you bought this much. Why are you paying me more? Um, and I really had to sit with him and be like, this is what you helped build. So of course this is your money. Um, it's not us. And I really had to change that idea that we were doing a good deed for him or this was charity for him. It was like, this is what you deserve. Right. And like, you are owed this by us. We are in debt to you for this. Um, I'm getting a little bit emotional. Yeah, well, I, um, this is what I want people to fully understand. Yeah. Because the more people that we talk about in sourcing, mm -hmm. we all have these relationships, right? That is like, right. they move you and there's such a responsibility. Someone was telling me, oh, I'm going to take this job, but I might, I can only really be there six months, but it's like a lot of money. And I'm like, I've never been in that kind of position because I've always been in a position that it is major that I keep that because I am a relationship holding people together for like their livelihood. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean that you're a savior. It just means like that right. is your function in the chain. Right. And like there's a responsibility with that. Well, quitting is not an option because there's like no. five families in India that like meet me every January and I have to look them in the face and say, did we do well or not? Totally. But I you think know? also looking at systems of how we profit share and support because you were talking about an organic certification. So I think one thing, and we'll cover this in the certification episode, is like you can't use chemicals for two years until you get this certification, but you don't get the premium typically, right? Exactly. That's how that works. So in order for him to make the investments and possibly have some loss as they're transitioning, this is a really great model. Well, we also, and we're paying him a premium without that certification. Right. He does, we don't have it yet. So December 2019 is will be the end of the three-year process to get the certification. Is it three years? Yeah, it's three okay. years in India okay. at least. Um, and I think that's the case for spices across the board and Indocert, that's what they do. Um, and it's been hard. Like we have had to give up a lot of really big accounts or not even, not even get a seat at the table to a lot of really big accounts because we don't have that certification. You Why know, I think that that's so important because, because distributors strong arm, uh, businesses into getting their USDA certified stamp on their packaging. And then everything has to and be And then everything organic. has to be organic. And I'm not, I don't know enough about how the certification body works. So I will listen to the episode when it comes out. But I really feel like it's this, uh, it's this system of creating labels. What am I trying to say? Basically, like I have talked to I can't disclose the company, but I will tell you off the record. Sure. I've talked to their scientists and they have showed off to me on record, like on tape, how they cheat the organic certification. It happens in coffee all the time. All the time. I right. had someone tell me, oh, you need a certification for that? Okay, yeah, hold, hold on one sec. And then they make, they make it. And it's like, yeah. we already paid you for something that was not certified. And now we are supposed to pay you for Now because we have it. to show payment because you're giving us a certificate. And I mean... That just feels really wrong, yeah. but it is offered without a blink of the eye. Right. Yeah. Not everywhere, and you have to be careful not to work with people that are abusing that system, right. but that's what's so scary about when people are demanding yeah. this. Well, and that's why I say that when you're going to the grocery store, like these big companies that slather organic and like uh, co-op owned or whatever on there, I know for a fact that it doesn't mean anything. Like I know exactly the farms that this stuff is coming from, and they are incredibly unjust like plantations pretty much in south india um how did we get here <laughs> i think we were uh, starting to get into how we avoid that triangle yes so we talked about like uh auction houses was the first one fertilizing pesticides was the other one um and then money lenders was the big one and so 
we have to step out of all three of those. But I found that also that usually means that we have to work with a farmer who has a significant amount of privilege to begin with. Yes. You know, like Prabhu owns all the land, like his family owns all of the land that they work on, which is very rare in India. Um, and I would love to work, eventually start to work with farmers who are working towards land ownership or need help with that. Because um, ultimately Prabhu, sure, he wouldn't be making bank the way he is right now or like having all of his hopes and dreams come true in a way. Um, but he would still be okay without us, you know? He, I think he got like an MBA. Like he's wow. very educated. His parents sent him to the big city to get a computer job. Um, he made a very conscious decision to come back to the farm and had the privilege to do that. So I think for us, we would love to eventually be able to work with farmers who it's not that they have the privilege to come back. It's that they have no choice but to stay where they are mm -hmm. and help them find routes out. And I'm sure that those farmers will want their kids to do something else. So when I mentioned that like Prabhu's cousins all want to come back, it's it's a very privileged group of people already. Right. Um, and now when I say privilege, I think if you compared it to like the American lower middle class, Obviously, there's no comparison. These people probably earn like, you know, under $15,000 a year. Um, but still, to give people an idea. I think in terms of, as I've looked into other spices, um, the biggest one that I'm still struck by is that how much men still run the game. So then when I see American companies saying that, you know, our product is coming from a women's cooperative in India, I'm always like, which cooperative? Which women? I don't see women that are empowered enough to do that. I I mean, I don't know any farmers that are women. The laborers are usually women, but they're nomadic. Um, so working towards a true women's farming cooperative would be incredible going down the line. Because um, I, I believe all those studies about how when you pay women, that money goes into the economy better. That money gets multiplied better. It gets saved better. Um, the other big one that we encounter so much in my sourcing is alcoholism. And that traces back to so many things. Well, partly the caste system and the British, which is that lower caste people have been pushed to drink across the board. So that means labor, the lower caste folks who also have a tendency towards alcoholism also tend to be laborers. Um, and so alcoholism within the labor caste is huge, which means that they're very rarely able to step out from above that sure. um so i often i'm very aware that with our company we're not able to address casteism at all we're largely dealing with um middle to upper caste folks um and it's only when we could really get down to the lowest caste and push them up through agriculture would there be a difference but you need land ownership for that you need there's a level of kind of development that is required for that, that even as the most radical company of my imagination, we are not getting to, which is not exact. I'm not saying that as a critique of us. I just think it's really important to recognize and be very upfront about that. Like we are as a company, my wildest dreams, but my wildest dreams are also my privileged like Mumbai education where my family is Jain and Muslim. So I was actually lucky enough to not even think about caste growing up. I didn't know the difference between lower caste and higher caste because I was taken out of that equation. Sure. Um, so at some point, I think to grow a company that's really has impact in a country with your sourcing, you also have to start to understand like what, 
your wildest dreams limitations are. Sure. And I think often, usually Americans, but mostly white Americans, are not able to understand that their wildest dreams don't even scratch, or their, their wildest dreams of what a company can be do not even scratch the surface of the real work that they should be doing. Yeah. And I see that from like shoe companies to coffee companies, like anybody working in the craft movement in India, but selling in the US, it is like just abysmal, They're the labor conditions that they are able to justify. Because um, I also think there's a certain Western idea that, oh, but like India is kind of meant to be poor, you know, so we're helping them. Um, but we don't have to help them enough so that they'd have too many things. Like if we give them too much money, they'll go wild. You know, there's a lot of those stereotypes of... I'm horrified right now. Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to nod and be like, you experienced this too. Well, the whole idea of someone like remaining remaining poor because it, because that's how it should be. I've never heard anybody like say that kind of thing. I don't think I'm... they explicitly say it. Yeah, yeah, But I yeah, think yeah. that's the implication. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I think the ex- the example that I can give you is that well, I know that a lot of companies um, working with crafter communities in India, so like textiles, uh, dyeing, weaving, that kind of thing, yeah. um, those communities are doing like very intricate, fine labor. Right. And if you visit those communities, they often have like very little access to light. They often have, um, right. of course, they have homes now because they get income from these companies. They have food on their table. But is there a bathroom in the village? No. Is there like a sewage system? No. Um, and the, the Americans will come visit every year and like give out sweets and give out clothes to the kids. And they see these conditions. And they see these conditions, but there isn't this, there is no sense of responsibility that my business should eliminate this. Right. You know, like I should be pricing based on what I know to be fair pricing, not what is like Indian standard pricing which is based yeah. on like 500 years of inequity and injustice and colonialism. Yeah. What I'm think realizing now is I've heard people say like, that's a lot of money for them. Like that's, that's good. That's exactly. a good amount of money. And exactly. that is like a coded way of being like, the, our exchange rate is strong here. You exactly. should be paying $350, $4 FOB. And like, I think I've run into a lot of exporters actually that have had a lot of privilege mm-hmm. and have um, worked at like big companies. Mm-hmm. And I'm an exporter with a lot of privilege. Totally. I'm like 100% that girl. Totally. And I get but, it. But yeah. you need, but you're an exporter and an importer. Mm-hmm. So you have the ability to be able to like have accountability on both sides. Absolutely. And I think when you work with an exporter that is trying to give those guidelines, like that's a lot of money and like maybe not giving firm gate pricing, but happy to give FOB. Like yeah. those are, are someone. The, the, exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Gate, those are the, the words. Those yeah. are the gatekeeper. Exactly. Yeah. And often actually in India, there's a nonprofit that will run things. So especially in South India with spices, there are nonprofits that um, oversee farmers cooperatives. Either it's a nonprofit or it's a Catholic um diocesan diocesan diocese diocese i don't know these words sure i think that means i think that's a thing um and they will become um kind of it's a really great way to convert black money into white like take illegal money and make it clean and so they will form cooperatives so in especially in kerala there's a lot of there's a lot of catholics in general in kerala and i'm sure they're great people not making generalizations about the catholics of kerala um (laughs) but there's um catholic uh like organizations that will then call themselves farmers cooperatives um and then I, who can understand the languages the farmers are speaking, can ask the farmers, well, how much are you really being paid? And it'll be less than the market price. It'll be less than the commodity price because they get they don't even have to go to the auction house. Like the 
organization of the nonprofits truck just comes straight to them Mm -hmm. and takes the bag. Um, And then those farmers co-ops, quote unquote, um, sell to all the big companies under like fake organic certifications and stuff. And when I've had meetings with the top notch people at those co-ops, they'll always say like, oh, but you know, like one dollar is so much money for these farmers. I'm like, but I know that you're not even paying them that dollar. Like you're paying them 30 cents, guys. Yeah. yeah. So that that coded that's definitely the coded language that people yeah. are using. The minute they say that's so much money, you know that they don't believe in equity. Like yeah. they believe in finance. Totally. <laughs> and capitalism. And in coffee, what I'm what we're doing is we're we're taking we're finding these like farmers, we're verifying quality, and then we're bringing roasters, and then they're supposed to set the prices together. Mm-hmm. And so I haven't heard exporters say that very often, but I'm mm-hmm. thinking about some of the times that have gone with newer people and they yeah. sort of like talk about that. it in that tone. And, yeah. Well, I also uh, think coffee is a much more developed market, right? Yeah. Because the past 10 years has created this whole movement around coffee. We can grade it. We can verify it. Absolutely. I mean, we're working on blockchain right There's now. There's blockchain. It's exactly. Like the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. I really want to get into blockchain and turmeric and those spices. That, that's just I have a lot of connections exciting. now with people. Yeah. If, I mean, Greg is working with somebody on blockchain. Yep. And I'm, we- I'm talking to someone who's doing honey for blockchain internationally and yeah it's awesome Mm -hmm. so Um, you've pretty much dedicated the last how many years to turmeric three three years in Mm -hmm. full in deep in deep oh Um, jesus so you could wake up tomorrow and do anything else even if it was temporarily okay having the full knowledge to be able to execute it well and it could be in any industry and so nothing to do with turmeric if i could just you could return to turmeric Mm-hmm. Yeah, but to do something else right now, like what would you love to just like learn tons about with no consequences and be able to experience? Oh, interesting. Honestly, blockchain. I think I am too dedicated to turmeric and sourcing and spices right now to want to do anything else. Like I say this all the time that I get to wake up with giant questions that I do not know the answer to and then make up the answer or research it. One of the two. And like, that's why I love my job. That's why it's worth the crazy and worth like everything else. Like part of me knows that if I had to do this all over again, I would not because I had no idea what I was getting myself in for. International trade is hard. It's madness. Sheer madness. Um, But I think I recognize now the business stuff I will just learn anyway. That's going to happen. I will keep learning. Um, but in terms of like this, the parallel industries like blockchain that are going to vastly change the way international trade works, I wish that I could just wake up knowing it all because I think it would vastly inform anything else with international trade. I'm mostly just a sourcing junkie at this point where I'm just like, this is such a high. It's um, the best. Yeah, it's quite it's quite addictive. I didn't expect to be addicted. I think you can't replace like human connection. Exactly. Which like to do across the world is pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah, exactly. Thanks again to Sana for stopping by the studio. You can find Sana and everything she's up to at Diaspora Co and diasporaco.com. And stay tuned for our music segment, where our music curator discusses the musical and cultural identity of the regions and products discussed in the episode. And if you haven't yet, please like and subscribe. You can find us online at sorceress underscore underscore. We are a small group of radical women trying to make it happen, and your support means so much. Hey everyone, this is Danielle Maggio, delivering you the sonic sauce of Sorceress. I'm really excited about today's segment because 
I'm focusing on popular music by queer and femme South Asian artists within the diaspora. This playlist is directly inspired by the founder of the company whose sources are featured ingredient. I was really interested in the ways in which they understood and conceived of this ingredient as a rhizome or of having roots and how that idea of roots could be applied to concepts of queerness and diaspora. All the artists featured in this playlist are South Asian and all are queer or femme identified. These artists utilize multiple languages, genre formations, and rhythmic structures to defy any notion of a singular musical or cultural identity. So it's both their connection to the South Asian diaspora and their femme-identified connection to queerness that directly influences their music. Okay, so first of all, let's discuss the concept of diaspora. Diaspora refers to a scattered population of people whose origin lies in a separate indigenous location. Some of the most commonly referred to diasporas are the Jewish diaspora and the African diaspora. Diasporas are formed when large amounts of people are forced to migrate away from their ancestral homeland due to causes of imperialism, such as the slave trade, as well as labor and education opportunities and other desires for upward social mobility. The South Asian diaspora is a global community made up of people from India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. The term Desi is used to describe an individual of South Asian heritage who grew up outside of the homeland country. However, diaspora identity is not formed from a binary relationship between heritage and traditions of homeland and the society, culture, and customs that the individual grew up with be it American, British, Canadian, or any countless others. Rather, it's a dialogue between the two, an exploration in multiculturalism. This exploration is often shaped and sounded through music making. After learning more about the rhizomatic nature of our sourced ingredient, it got me thinking about the metaphor of a roots and how it can be applied to the concept of a diasporic musical identity. The word roots is often used to signify the homeland and the beliefs, norms, and values of its heritage. Quite literally, roots are the subterranean base to a sentient structure. Roots are inherently connected to the land and spread horizontally throughout time. But roots serve the greater purpose of nourishing something else, giving life to some other structure, something nuanced and multifaceted. Once this flowering happens, the base and the structure are one fluid entity, mutually nourishing each other. In philosophy, the concept of a rhizome is used as a mode of knowledge and model for society that allows for multiple non-hierarchical entry and exit points into representation and interpretation. I'm moved by this meaning to consider the formation of diaspora as a queering of cultural identity. I'm continually impressed and inspired by the ways in which queerness in the 21st century uproots the designs of the patriarchy. More and more often, queerness is being observed for its application as a radical act and a sensibility, more than for its connection to sexuality or sexual orientation. Therefore, the idea of queering culture or queering identity or queering an ingredient or a company stands to turn those models on their heads 
and carve out a space for a new representation and interpretation of them. Now, of course, there are associations of queerness with sexuality, and these associations are particularly important in cultures that marginalize those living outside of the heteronormative design. In September of 2018, the Supreme Court of India legalized homosexuality by overturning a colonial-era law put in place by the British that criminalized homosexuality. While the law was repealed, South Asian society is still a long way from cultural change and societal acceptance. Therefore, South Asian artists who identify as queer are bravely calling out for recognition, representation, and equality. Such is the case with ethereal electronic artists from South Carolina, Diaspora, as well as synthy dance pop artists from LA, Kohenorgasm. The very name Kohenorgasm is a direct move to queer language and meaning. Kohenor is the word for one of the largest cut diamonds in the world. Originally from India, the diamond was claimed as part of the British crown jewels in 1849. By adding orgasm to the end of the word, the artist is decolonizing the word and the diamond's place in history. The diamond is now associated with the desire and pleasure and autonomy of the femme Indian artist. In this sense, queering the word kohinoor has nothing to do with sexual preference, but rather is about reshaping meaning outside of a patriarchal colonial context. The music created by these femme South Asian artists resound the nuanced and multifaceted nature of the diaspora and actively work to queer cultural identity. These artists bravely and boldly engage with both the roots of South Asian heritage and the flowering of a global diasporic community. To listen to this week's playlist, as well as access playlists from past episodes, go to Spotify or Apple Music and search for Sorceress. That's S-O-U-R-C-E-R-E-S-S. You can also access them through our website at sorceresshq.com. The playlists are public, but we hope you'll consider subscribing to our podcast so you can get fabulous fresh updates each week and easily access the playlists. Thank you all so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the sonic sauce of Sorceress. Sorceress is written, directed, and produced by Carolyn Kissick and Colleen King. Our music curator is Danielle Maggio. Theme music by Flatbroke Robot. Special thanks to our donors who all helped make this possible. Megan King, Ray King, Christopher Kissick, Deb Maggio, Gus and Mary Ann Bonderheide, Jose Posadas, Courtney Minnick, Jen Apodaca, Vanessa Brown, Jonathan Joseph, and Max Keeley. We couldn't have done it without you. Thanks for joining us on Sorceress. Until next time, stay curious.